As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Defining Dad Bod, where we work to untangle the messy knots of the health and fitness industry as if your children's lives depended on it. Because they do. This is where we decide to make our bodies stand for something bigger than ourselves. This is where we find practical wisdom to live by, one powerful conversation at a time. May the words spoken here inspire you to keep moving forward no matter where you are. Who knows who you could be if you could become 1% better every single day. We can do the show thanks to the support of listeners just like you. For more information how you can become part of the inner circle, go to findingdadbod.com slash inner circle. What's up, guys? This is Alex Van Houten with Defining Dad Bod. I hope you're doing super well. Today's show is a powerful show with Dr. Nick Satello from The Upgraded Life. You might be fascinated to know that we recorded the show just before the pandemic, which is why after I say this right now, you'll hear no mention of COVID-19 or coronavirus throughout the duration of this interview. I hope you're excited about that. I know I am. This conversation was a deep and powerful one, and I had several takeaways from it, and I know you will too. In addition to the importance of nutrition, exercise, and lifestyle change with regard to psychological well-being, one of the major things that we talk about today is being an aware advocate for yourself with regard to the medications that you take every day. Now, if you're listening to the sound of my voice, it's very possible you're not taking any medications at all. However, it's almost statistically impossible that somebody important isn't currently being treated for anxiety, depression, ADHD, or a number of other mental health issues via psychotropic medications, whether it's for you or a loved one. I know you'll get a lot out of this conversation. I know I did. Two pieces of housekeeping before we dive in. First, I want to say thank you to the listeners who took the time to jump on iTunes and give us a raving review. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. It makes it much easier for people to discover the work that we're doing here at Defining DadBod. And while I don't believe every single episode we do is earth-shattering and eye-opening to everybody, I know that many people need to hear things like the last episode we just published, four things you need to know in order to stop emotional eating, 
And when you take one to two minutes to give us a five-star review on your podcast platform, it brings Defining Dad Bod further up the charts. So when people search things like calories, emotional eating, weight loss, fitness, parenthood, an episode of Defining Dad Bod is much more likely to pop up as an answer to that search question. One of our awesome reviews this week comes from Fit Chick in Virginia. She said, This is an excellent podcast. Alex has a wealth of knowledge in the fitness industry and makes sure that during his interview slash program, you clearly understand the topic of discussion. He can go down to the scientific micro level, but still delivers it in a way that you can completely understand. It's definitely one of my top five podcasts for sure. And don't let the name fool you. I'm a female, and 95% of the information is relatable. Thanks so much, Fit Chicken Virginia. You rock. If you'll shoot me an email at coachal at definingdadbod.com. Speaking of awesome reviews, item number two on our housekeeping today is to make sure you've checked out the jumpstart at definingdadbod.com slash shop. We've had several people connect to that product over the last few weeks, and whether they've used that as a springboard to reconnect with their goals in a powerful and well-informed way, or as a way to try out our coaching to decide whether or not they want to do that for the long term to reach their goals. Everybody who's connected with the Jumpstart has found it very valuable. One week of coaching, a food journal analysis, a live consultation, personalized macronutrient recommendations, and getting on our 16-week hormone optimization mailing list is all included in the Jumpstart. The link's in the description below, or if you prefer to type it in yourself, you can find that at definingdadbot.com slash shop. I'd be honored to be in your corner for a week and give you a jump start towards your goals. Thanks so much for tuning in to Defining Dad Bod. And without further ado, let's dive into this awesome conversation with Dr. Nick Satello. What's up, guys? This is Alex Van Houten with Defining Dadbot. I'm super excited to be hanging out with Dr. Nick Satello. How are you today, brother? I'm doing excellent. Thanks for asking. Yeah, man. We just had such a cool conversation that'll be airing on your show soon. And we got to talk through some of my coaching practice stuff. And I'm just really stoked to talk about your coaching practice stuff. We're going to be getting into uh, things like psychotropic drugs today. We're going to be talking about how people can manage their nutrition, exercise, and lifestyle a bit better so that perhaps they can reduce the dependence on those things. Things and what they actually are, how they might be affecting us negatively. We've got a lot to cover. So I want to start by just talking a bit about how did you get where you are? What's your superhero origin story that brought you to the point where you're helping people through the Upgraded Life podcast, your life coaching? You've got a lot going on, man. I do. Maybe that's my superhero powers <laughs> to be super busy and there you go. somehow manage to stay on top of it for the most part. So Wow. Um, my superhero origin story really starts like it does for probably most of us, right? When we were little kids. So I'm going to be a little bit vulnerable here in kind of the origin story. So part of it that I won't get into, but I, I went to go live with my grandparents at a young age, at the age of two. And in that process, you know, my years coming into this world, um, long story short, I had terrible teeth and I used to get made fun of at school to the point to where kids would throw me up against the wall and make me show them my teeth because of, they just couldn't believe that somebody's teeth could be um, so rotten and so terrible. So I had that and that was like, I don't know, 
kindergarten, first grade, second grade type of stuff, right? And fortunately, as time went on, I grew to be big and strong and and typically bigger and stronger than most people that I uh, came around with. So it wasn't necessarily that I was bullied, right? But I did kind of have that experience of how cruel people could be for things that were totally outside of my control, right? I had no control over, you know, what was fed to me in a bottle when I was a little child that resulted in me having kind of rotten teeth. So, you know, fast forward through time, you know, I was heavily involved in sports. I was in Boy Scouts and earned an Eagle Scout rank, which, you know, you're always an Eagle Scout after that. Just did a lot of things to develop manly qualities, I guess, or skills. Uh, Was always team-oriented played varsity sports in high school and, you know, went on through college to do, you know, other competitive adventures and whatnot. But through it all, was really kind of a people person. Even though I'm naturally introverted, I always like to be around people or at least one or two people, maybe not big crowds, right? So I would prefer to be with or around people. And I was leading groups and Bible studies at church and just did, you know, stuff like that fairly consistently. And whenever there was a project that needed somebody to take the lead, you know, my name would come up or or whatnot, or it would fall to my plate by default sometimes. And just, you know, not always, but for the most part being, okay, I'll do it. You know, sometimes maybe being a reluctant leader, so to speak. And, you know, going into undergraduate school, my path at the time was to be pre-med in the go to dental school. And I went to school in the same town that I was raised in. And so I was called a townie. When it came choice to study for physics or go hang out with my high school buds, yeah, hanging out with high school buds kind of won out over physics. And so, you know, kind of coming into my junior year, my GPA was just wasn't hanging to be pre-med. And my mindset uh, going into college is I, I didn't get into a chemistry class that I needed. I didn't get into intro to chemistry during freshman year. And I didn't bother to ask anybody about it. I just thought, well, okay, that's just the way this is. And I'll get into it next term. Well, they didn't offer chem one next term. <laughs> so it put me a whole year behind. And long story short there, if I would have asked, I would have went on a waiting list and they would have opened up another section for me. But I never asked. I was so asking for help back then was something that I just didn't do, right? And so going into junior year, I was looking at, oh my gosh, I was going to have to take whatever the next level of physics was because I had already suffered through one and two. I was going to have to take physical chemistry. I was going to have to take organic chemistry, um, some ridiculous like discrete mathematics, you know, because <laughs> all that in the same term. And I said, there's no way it's just going to kill me. So I took everything that I had in terms of credits and looked for a major that would accept them all. And lo and behold, psychology would. And so I reflected on my early, you know, intro to psychology classes and thought, well, that, that, that was kind of fun. That was kind of interesting. So I rolled into a psychology major and accepted all my credits. And I was the only psych major that had electives like organic chemistry and physics one and two and all those things. And people are like, what's wrong with you? I'm like, I don't know. It's just how it unfolded. So I finished strong junior and senior year in psychology, you know, really raised my GPA overall. And then out of, you know, undergraduate school, got courted into going into youth corrections. And so this was the era of X-Files. I'm dating myself. So this is when X-Files was the Sunday evening show. And we would all go over and hang out and watch X-Files. And people, you know, keeping up on what's going on in each other's lives and they, people know that I was graduating and these two different people at this showing would say, hey, you should come work for us where we work, which was, you know, the Oregon Youth Authority uh, state level youth corrections. And we need people like you. We need, you know, strong men to come in and and be examples for these boys that got in trouble. And I thought, okay. So that's what I did. And it was my first job out of undergraduate school. And probably within the year of starting the job, my boss that hired me encouraged me to go back to school because he saw potential in me. 
I consider him now a, a mentor, a master in my life. And so I took that urging and I went back to school and while I was working, um, so I was working full-time shift work and then going to grad school and I earned a degree in marriage and family therapy. And that was in 2005. So 99 is when I graduated undergraduate, 2005, marriage and family therapy. And then in 2009, I jumped back into uh, school again and started a doctorate and finished that in 2015. And that was a PhD in counselor education and supervision. So in that time frame, I'm still working youth corrections, opened up private practice in my town of Salem, Oregon, using my graduate degree to work with couples and children and, you know, surprise, surprise, you know, working with adolescents that are struggling because that was, you know, my wheelhouse and helping parents keep their sanity there and dealing with that. And fast forward to today, which is 2020. Um, so last October of 2019, I celebrated my 20th year in my career of youth corrections, state level corrections. Here's the reality. In the corrections world, it's, it is one of the high highest stress um, jobs that there is. So we get lumped into public safety. And so you'll see, you know, stats about public safety being high stress. But when you tease out the different disciplines in public safety, corrections pegs out at the highest. And so we do experience the highest level of career burnout and stress levels. And on average, a corrections employee when they retire lasts five years post-retirement. Wow. Not to blow by your entire story and like fixate on something you just said, but why do you think that is? I'm listening to you. My listeners are listening to you. You don't sound like the most burnt out, stressed out guy we've ever met. Obviously, either you've done something a little differently or there's something going on under the surface that makes that a difficult thing. What do you think that is? Great question. I think for me, when I look at burnout, and I've done a lot of thinking and writing about that, and I'm still working. So my focus at work in corrections is to equip and empower the staff in a way that I never was. I was just kind of left to float along to a certain degree. Systematically, we don't do a lot to help our staff. And for me, it's about mindset, right? And so burnout for me, in my best conclusions at this point, is about two things. It's about purpose and value for the work that you do. If you aren't linked, if you aren't aligned, if you don't understand, and the purpose of your work and the value that it derives, that's really where burnout comes into play. We can talk about things that you can do, activities that you can do in your life to help prevent burnout or stave off stress or whatnot. But they're, to me, they're, they're just addressing symptoms to the true problem is that you're unhooked from the purpose and value that's attached to the work that you do. And so staying crystal clear on that and then making the decision along the way, like I'm happy to help somebody who's new to the field realize after two, three, four or five years that this isn't for me. I'm happy to help somebody see that, right? Because we stopped here with my comment about five years post-retirement, people expiring. I've seen way too many people not make it to retirement. So they've actually died prior to being eligible to quote unquote retire. So I think, you know, it's keeping focused on what's really important in life. I go to work because I love the underdog story, which is what these kids are. These are kids that society hasn't been able to get on and keep on the best track for life. And so they come to us with a label of, you know, there's no hope for this kid, right? So I love the underdog story. I love being able to dig in, you know, with a kid and help them turn things around. I mean, so that's, you know, purpose for me, right? That's value for me in, in the work that I do. And so I learned to take the other things in stride and really kind of glom on to the positive aspects of what we do and the real impact that we're having with kids. At state level corrections, if you can turn a kid around, you're literally saving lives. You're saving their life. If they're the type of 
person that has a propensity to be violent with other people, you're saving the lives of other people. But in the day-to-day grind of shift work and corrections, you don't really get to see that necessarily, right? And so mm. the trap is none of this is helping. These kids never going to get it. They're never going to turn around. But the reality is that we turn around um, a high number of kids and that we're literally saving lives for that. So I stay focused on that, right? Um, go ahead. I see you have a question. <laughs> so kind of piggybacking onto that is like I'm looking at you and you've got the broad shoulders and traps of somebody who exercises. Like, like I can tell I've been a trainer for a long well, time. I can you. look at somebody and go, yeah, they work out. And <laughs> yeah, there, there you go. Flex for me. Perfect. So I can tell you obviously are invested mm-hmm. in your own personal health and fitness. What part do you think that plays in creating that foundation to be able to latch onto the purpose and value of sure. work? Is, is it something do you think that helps you from a resiliency perspective in that line of work? Absolutely. And for me, it's something that didn't really have the place that it needed in my life until about, you know, maybe a year and a half ago, two years ago. So I've always maintained my activity through sports, right? So, you know, playing, you know, adult league softball, playing in competitive basketball leagues. And so that's usually the way that I would maintain, you know, my level of fitness and exercise and, you know, doing activities with the kids at work as well, whether it was weightlifting or whatnot, you know, there was opportunity to do that. But as I got older and my family got more kids added to it and their activities, those opportunities for me to personally be active got less and less. And so there was a long stretch, probably, you know, the better part of a decade where regular exercise really wasn't part of my routine. I'm an avid waterfowler and so, you know, waterfowl hunting. So from October to January, you know, I'd be hoofing it out in the swamp, you know, two or three times a week. And boy, that would, you know, definitely get the blood pumping. But outside of that, there really, you know, I wasn't really intentional. So for me, it came from conviction out of a book called The Compound Effect by Darren Hardy. In that book, he talked about how long-term fitness outcomes for people who just walked intentionally two or three times a week, if you're talking long-term, three to five years, just taking up the habit of walking will outpace anything else that you could do right? That if you just stayed committed to it. And so I really started thinking about that. I had a goal in 2019 to lose 40 pounds. That was my goal. And so I knew that that was going to have to come through changing what I was currently doing. And so I tracked uh, my weeks and the days that I worked out. Uh, But here's the thing about my workouts. And so I was doing a mixture of cardio and kettlebell at home. So I would wake up. I'm also a Miracle Morning fan. So I, I do savers, right? And so the E in savers is exercise. And so here's what I I discovered for me personally, I did and I still do have my best thoughts during the course of exercising. So that is what became the driver for me to stay committed to exercising every day. So I pride myself on being a problem solver. When you work state level government, you know, the people say, well, just, you, can't, you can't make an impact. You can't make a difference. It's the big system. And I will screw that. I'm going to do what I can to 1% better. Right? I'm, a big, I'm a big believer of 1% better every day, not only in myself, but in the system that I work with. And so I noticed, especially in cardio, and I do cardio kettlebell as well, that these thoughts would come like answers and solutions. Um, solutions to big hairy problems. And as soon as I would get done, I'd go write them down because otherwise I might lose it. And that became the big driver for me for actually staying committed. And it became less about losing 40 pounds. It was more about what is this actually doing for me overall in terms of holistic health. So that's what sold me on it. You know, Mm, I I would mirror that experience. So I have Ehlers-Danlos, as my listeners know here, and I shouldn't be running. That's not something that 
a physical therapist would recommend somebody whose ligaments and tendons are stretchy. And don't get me wrong, I've had to work really hard to maintain this ability, but I can't give it up because I don't know where else in my life that I can have some of the epiphanies of fatherhood that I've had, mm -hmm. some of the mental focus I've been able to maintain to solve business problems and problems for my clients and whatnot. There is a significant cognitive impact on an individual because of exercise, which is actually the primary topic of our conversation today. One last personal question, though, before we get into, you know, knowledge base and, and education. I love the idea of how you've been able to turn some of your story, being the kid getting pushed up against the wall with messed up teeth, you've turned some of that story into something valuable and purposeful for you and helping young kids. I thought, especially given the conversation that we're having about uh, psychotropic medications and whatnot, what are you seeing with the kids that we've written off as problem kids with no future? What are the labels that we're giving them? Is this antisocial disorders? Is this ADHD? Is this bipolar and depression? Like what labels are these kids coming into the correctional facilities with that are outside of just, you don't act like we want you to act or you did something mm -hmm. bad and now you're yeah. in jail for it? Wow, that's a huge question. So my wife spent 18 years in the education field and worked her way up to earning the, the credentials to be a principal, but then decided to do something different with her life and her career as well. And so I have intimate knowledge in terms of what goes on, you know, kind of both sides systemically of kids moving through the system. And so the primary label maker for kids comes through the school system, right? And so kids that are going to struggle in school and the school is focused on one and one thing only, right? And that's academic performance however that's defined. So that's really important for people to realize that if your kid is struggling in a hundred different ways, if they're getting good grades, the school really doesn't care about that from a systems perspective, right? From an individual teacher or class aide or school counselor, yes, I'm not saying that people don't care. I'm just saying that as a system, the system doesn't care about all the other things that might be going on in your life as long as you're performing academically, right? So that's kind of just know that. So if you aren't performing academically, that's when you're going to hit the radar at school. And that's when it's going to come through a parent-teacher conference, or it's going to come from an email from a principal, or your teacher is going to reach out to you. And they're going to start saying things like, I think you should take your kid to the doctor. Doctor. Your kid is obviously you know, struggling with ADHD, right? So that's what those labels get ascribed to kids. And I've seen it go in waves as my wife has you know, been in teaching. She was a classroom teacher for 15 years, right? So the initial wave back in the late 90s, early 2000s was to label kids bipolar, right? And so um, kids would get labeled bipolar, and then they got labeled, you know, ADHD, and then they got labeled autistic, and then they got labeled, you know, all these different things. And so here's the reason why the label drives additional resources for the school to support the child, right? So I don't want to totally demonize um, what the system is trying to do right? Because that's their way of saying, hey, this kid needs additional help. And the only way to get additional help is through these kind of narrow gates. And, you know, it's, it's ADHD, it's bipolar, it's reactive attachment disorder, it's autism, right? And so they have to ascribe one of those labels in order for a kid to get additional support, right? When those things don't work to get a kid back on track, they continue to fall further and further and further through the crack to the point to where by about middle school or freshman age in high school, most of the kids that come to me at state level corrections have all but dropped out of school, right? Because they just aren't getting the support and the help that they need. And what the actual label is, I just got done going through a book called The Deepest Well. It's ACEs. It's Adversive Childhood Experiences. That's the label that I'll say is active there. 
the more adversive childhood experiences you have, the more trouble you're going to have, you know, for sure in school that you're going to have problems with that. So yes, ADHD, autism, bipolar, those tend to be a conduct disorder, oppositional defiance disorder. Kids under age 18 are too young for a, what we call a cluster B personality disorder. That's why you get antisocial or narcissistic or borderline. But, you know, 80% of our kids that come into state level corrections have some sort of, you know, major mental illness label applied to them by the time they get to us. Now, we didn't actually plan to talk about this. I want listeners to understand that because what I'm about to say sounds like we planned it this way, but we didn't. Uh, When you say that, you, you said something really important there or at least something that caught my attention. And it's that if you are performing academically, then there are no additional labels or resources that really go into, I don't know, as a kid, I, I would rate pretty high on aversive childhood experiences on the scale. I had a really rough, rough upbringing. However, I performed really well academically. So nobody would have known any different. You know, my junior year of high school, there wasn't like a, a rap sheet done on my report card. There was just you know, mm-hmm. way to go, Alex, keep doing the good work kind of thing. Many of the listeners listening to this right now have experience with and have people in their life who performed well academically, mm-hmm. but have dealt in their life with some sort of label, mental disorder, label, uh, depression, anxiety, ADHD might be out there, uh, bipolar disorder, and, and a number of other things, right? So I say this because one of the things that we were interested in having a conversation about was the ability to change what you have the capacity to change, things like nutrition, exercise, lifestyle, to not be in the one in six Americans who are currently taking psychotropic drugs. And psychotropic drugs, it sounds really scary, but a lot of people have these in their cabinet right now. Antidepressants, anti-anxiety medications, you could have amphetamines to help with focus and ADHD. There's, There's a number of things that you might have been prescribed. I did an entire series on this back in uh, the beginning of Defining Dan Baden. Didn't really get to finish it on how exercise affects the brain. And so one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about is for those of us who kind of, you know, made it through, so to speak, made it through the system, didn't necessarily get to sit across the table from you, performed well academically, but in one way or another, we entered a space in our life where the anxiety was too much, the depression was too much, the ADHD was too much, whatever that was. And the medical answer to that was a medication. Many people either one, don't understand that there's more to it than just that, like the the medication may or may not be the long-term fix for the issue, Mm -hmm. but two, that there are research studies and systematic controlled trials that show different benefits to natural things you can control, exercise, nutrition, lifestyle. So it was a weird segue when you said that there are plenty of people who, I mean, maybe you didn't go to a correctional facility as a child, but maybe you've struggled with depression in your 30s, Mm -hmm. or maybe you're wrestling with anxiety in your 50s. There are plenty of people who have come to my fitness consultations. And when I ask about, you know, medical issues that would be related to exercise, they're like, oh yeah, I'm not on heart medications. You know, I'm taking this thyroid pill, uh, but there's nothing else going on. And then 12, 16 weeks into our workout program, they're like, oh yeah, I've been taking this antidepressant for three years. I'm like, wait a second, that's kind of important. That's like on the list of medications, (laughs) that's there. So I I was hoping to talk to you about your experience in counseling, because it's not just correctional facilities and stuff. You have also worked with families and children. Your experience with psychotropic medications, what are they and what do they actually do and do they work? Absolutely. So first of all, I am a doctor, but I'm not a uh, medical doctor. So yeah, that's important. 
those that are listening, you know, just keep that in mind. And I've been passing psychotropic medications since 1999, right? So part of my duties in corrections, being a, a line staff is what we call it, was three to four times a day, we would line kids up, open up a cabinet and call them up one by one. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We would pass them medications. So I've been doing that for a long time. And just kind of the curious guy that I am, I would want to know more about the medications. So I was reading psych reports and, you know, psychiatric update notes and researching it. And then as I was able to filter that through my graduate experience as well. So had lived experience uh, of passing medications and seeing what they did or, or didn't do, right? But you're also face-to-face -face with these kids in a counseling setting, right? Yeah. Like you kind of need to know what the medication's doing or supposed to be doing to help them along, right? Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. You see those, um, if you took Accutane, you, you know, have an you know, ability to sue in a class action lawsuit. It's like, man, I passed a lot of Accutane back in the day for acne and whatnot. So my mantra is diet, sleep, and exercise. You know, the things that you can control. And, and here's what I'll put up. You show me somebody that has healthy diet, sleep, and exercise. They're very few and far between to meet criteria for a mental disorder. Not, not that they don't exist, right? But very few and far between. We know that, you know, SSRIs have a shelf life in terms of um, their effectiveness in you. So like when you're saying you meet somebody who says, I've been on a medication for three years, um, you know, the numbers will show that that whatever that medication is going to lose its impact, then you got to switch to another one. Very, very, very common um, to have happen. And I also say, you know, I did listen to your series early on that you did, you know, kind of really tapping into spark and the info in there. And, you know, I, Dr. Rady is a, you know, psychiatrist or he's trained in the, in the medical field, right? So he takes it to the edge, but then kind of stays right there. And I'll take it further. We don't actually know what these medications do. We have theories about serotonin, Right. But we don't actually know that. In our conversation earlier, we talked about serotonin, you know, being re, uh, responsive to testosterone. And, and, you know, we have this theory that serotonin is, you know, a mood elevator and stabilizer, but we don't know that. We do know that when you inject serotonin into lobsters, and I'm pulling out of Jordan Peterson's book here, it's responsible for creating structure, order, and hierarchy within lobsters, right? That if you shut off serotonin to lobsters, then they just kind of, they don't, you know, colonize and, and act normal and whatnot. 
So we don't really know what serotonin does and the, and the overall role. We know it plays a factor, but we're not, you know, and this is where psychiatry and psychology, they are not analogous to standard medical practice if that makes sense, right? If you break your arm and you know because your arm hurts and it starts to swell, you can go to get an x-ray and they put the film up and they say, yep, you got a broken arm. And then we know exactly what to do in order to heal your arm. You know, high specificity of what's going to work, right? You're going to have to cast it. It's going to be in the cast for six to eight weeks. And after six to eight weeks, you're going to have to do this amount of rehab and then your arm's going to be good as new. That straightforwardness in the mental health world does not exist at all. And so that's something that people need to keep in mind. Uh, the other thing that I'll say about things like depression, anxiety, and the medication is if you have a personality that's prone to being depressed, well, the medication isn't going to remove depression from your experience. It's going to create some distance, right? So you're still going to have depressive, defeating, dark thoughts, but they're not going to be as loud and as pronounced or as frequent when you're on the medication versus uh, when you're off. So that's something to understand as well. There's other work that needs to be done if people want to completely overcome things like depression and anxiety, uh, even things like bipolar and whatnot. So the medications help. They provide a buffer and window, but they aren't the complete solution, so to speak, if you're looking for a cure. Mm. An analogous example I, I like to talk through here is something like uh, heart disease. So again, as uh, Dr. Satel and I are talking, none of this is intended to be medical advice necessarily, but it's extremely important to understand where medical interventions that weren't intended to be long-term mm -hmm. and that perhaps we don't understand super well might be an opportunity to improve things that can be long-term and hopefully to reduce the dependence on the shorter-term interventions, right? So uh, one example I like to bring up is something like, and, and this is contentious, so uh, <laughs> somebody's going to get mad at me and that's fine, but something like a cholesterol-lowering medication, right? So let's say you go to the doctor and your HDL is really low and your LDL is really high and your total cholesterol is pretty high and you have a family history of heart disease and your doctor, rightly so, says, dude, your cholesterol is high. Like you probably need to eat better. You need to exercise, probably need to get some sleep. You need to, they're a really smart doctor. They'll tell you to go recover, to fight some inflammation and all that stuff. In the meantime, let's try to lower that cholesterol a little bit. Here's a cholesterol lowering medication. And a lot of people will go, oh, okay, here's the pill to fix my problem. I'm going to take that thing and it will, it will lower your cholesterol. Like you'll come back to the doctor and your numbers will look great. And so I've had consultations where I've worked with people where they've taken, you know, three or four or five different things to get the numbers just right, but they haven't made any of the nutritional, dietary, exercise, lifestyle changes that would improve those things for the long term. And then when we start talking about things, they get mad at their doctor for prescribing a medication to them that wasn't, you know, addressing the underlying issue. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa hold up, wait a second. Maybe there could be a little better communication about long-term expectations here. But did you ask your doctor, am I going to be taking this for the rest of my life? What can I do not to do this forever, right? Mm -hmm. And the same thing goes for the mental health world is if you've entered a state of depression, I hope nothing bad has happened to anybody listening to be this intense, but let's say something has, has turned upside down in your life and you enter a place where you're a danger to yourself, given the thoughts that you've had in, in your own mind, right? That's rough. And working with a psychiatrist, you might do some antidepressant at that point in time to help to elevate you and, and move you forward. But if at the same time, you're not taking that little boost you're getting and, and that little lift and that little help that you're getting, if you're also staying up till 3 a.m. and waking up at, I don't know, 1 p.m., 
keeping very strange hours and not eating breakfast and what's exercise, I don't do that, and you don't get out in the sun. If you're not doing those things, then your body's natural process to kind of bring you out of that depression is not being tapped into for you. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's one of the things that Dr. John Rady's working on in, in that book, Spark, is, is trying to say, hey, there's some researched evidence to show that exercise could be prescribed, if not more often, at least as often, to treat many of the things that people are dealing with that are currently being treated with psychotropic medications. So I said a lot of things. What does that bring to mind for you? It brings to mind, I was doing some research before coming on this show because I was really excited about having this conversation. And so something that just popped up on the Big Think website and Big Think is kind of like a corollary to TED Talk, right? And so there was a study done, I believe in Maryland, and they looked at inpatient um, psychiatric crisis care where the patients got three one-hour sessions of various types of exercise. So sometimes it was yoga, sometimes it was structured and monitored uh, weightlifting, sometimes it was cardio, um, and just the overall results were just uh, phenomenal. And so patients um, being able to say from their own perspective, yes, I feel better. I actually benefited from this exercise, which is huge, right? And then seeing the reduction, I think they, you know, for people that were depressed, they saw a 50% reduction, which is important, right? They saw a 50% reduction in how that depression was assessed in the first place, which is absolutely huge. Hopefully I can link back to that in a second. And so, you know, this idea that this goes back to Rene Descartes, right? Uh, I think, therefore, I am, that we as a society, especially Western Civ, we've separated uh, mind from body and heart. We see them as two different entities, and um, that's done a lot of damage to us in a lot of different ways. In psychology, it's done damage, obviously, in our physical health, that we have to look holistically no matter what the presenting problem is. We always need to look holistically at it. So when I was seeing patients in private practice, one of the first things that I would ask them is, when was the last time you saw your doctor? When was the last time you had a physical or a checkup? When was the last time you had your blood work done? And if they said something like, I don't know, I said, okay, uh, before we go any further, go make a medical appointment and just get a basic workup and checkup. Because we could be wasting a lot of time in counseling and therapy for something that, you know, maybe your thyroid is off, maybe your testosterone is low. You know, it's all linked, but we need to get holistic kind of understanding. And I wish that the prescribers would jump on that as well more. And again, there are some that are out there, right? I mean, obviously, uh, Rady is one of them. Uh, But categorically, it's not something that's occurring. And that was kind of the outcome of the study in Maryland is that their recommendation is that any inpatient psych program needs to have a gym attached to it. That was the kind of their conclusion there. When I was just like, yes, mm-hmm. this, this is catching on. We're, we're, we're building momentum. In my world, um, we parole kids, right? So these are kids that are coming to state level corrections. And oftentimes they don't have a good support network. They're not going home, especially the ones that are 18 plus in Oregon. We can keep kids until they're 25 years old. So oftentimes they're going to independent living. Sometimes they're going to um, the mission. It's a sad story. Um, and we scramble to give them 30 days worth of medication, right? But what happens after that 30 days? We haven't done our due diligence to teach these young people about diet, sleep, and exercise. And the research is attached to those in terms of long-term impact on their holistic health and mental well-being. And so that's kind of my crusade at this point was that we need to be hitting this because those are the things that anybody has immediate influence or control over is diet, sleep, and exercise. I'll pause there and turn it back over to you. That, that's exactly right. No, that's, that's beautiful because, you know, we've had men and women 
come onto this show and talk about how they're managing drug addiction, depression, anxiety, like how they're managing that through their own exercise programs. Like they're not even my clients. We're not even actually working together, but that exercise was actually what they would consider the key to freeing themselves from the depression cycles or freeing themselves from the anxiety attacks or focusing their ADHD symptoms and whatnot. It's something that it's kind of like the dad bod thing. You know, I, I just spoke about this on, on your show, The Upgraded Life, how we know this from a research perspective that after a baby's born, this stuff happens to dad's body. And I think I read most of the books, you know, when my, my new kid was on the way, I was like, oh man, I'm going to be the most prepared dad you've ever seen ever. I read The Expectant Father. I read Better Dad, Stronger Sons. I read as many books as I could get my hands on. You and I both know you're holding the baby and you're like, I don't know Jack. I read all the books and I don't know Jack. But there wasn't a book right. for, for, hey dad, your hormones are going to be all jacked up. Here's what's going to happen to you and get excited. Here's how to manage it. Well, the same thing can be said about people who are managing depression, anxiety, drug addiction, ADHD, things like that, even in adulthood. Same could be said that we, there are a few books, they're, they're kind of high level, but there are a few books that are like, hey, this is well-researched. If you're not exercising regularly, you're not getting enough sleep, you're feeding your body a bunch of processed garbage. Like, yeah, of course you're going to be depressed and anxious if you have the personality disposition that kind of you know, feeds into that. And, and maybe some things happened in your life yeah. that are pretty intense as well. Put all those together. It's like, you can't, you can't lose. You can't lose if you start exercising regularly. And if you start eating a good breakfast, and if you start keeping normal sleeping hours and stuff, you, you just can't escape the fact that you are a diurnal circadian rhythm mammal. And you can, you can set a lot of systems straight if you can get on the activity front there. So now I'm speaking as a coach, a, a trainer, personal trainer, nutritionist. I'm, I'm speaking as somebody who's worked with people in these atmospheres. Now you have counseled mm -hmm. from a, a psychological perspective. And so what are you seeing when, because I mean, you're not a trainer necessarily, but I know that you're a smart guy and that you have worked with people who you're like, you know what? I need you to get enough sleep at night. I, you know, like I, I need you to start morphing your nutrition around here. I need, I need you to get outside in the sun and go for a run or something. What are you seeing in, I guess, one, the sorts of recommendations you find yourself making and two, the adherence to that sort of thing. Yeah. So you're talking about behavior change, right? Which is, which is difficult, yeah. which is very difficult. Um, well, one of the things that you said when a second ago that I want to make sure I tap into is we have to teach people to advocate for themselves in front of their prescribers, right? Like it's what you were talking about. Like, hey, doc, how long am I going to have to be to do this? What's the long-term impact and whatnot? So when I was teaching grad school, I taught for about six years, taught uh, counselors. And I would say, you know, I, I'll give you 50 bucks if you run into somebody in your office and you ask them these two questions. Are you taking meds? Yes or no. If the answer is yes, then your next question is, what are you taking them for and how do they help you? And my $50 guarantee is most people cannot answer that question for you, right? So people are producing, if it's, you know, somebody who's carrying a bag, they're like, yeah, I got these meds here. Well, what is it? I don't know. What, what do you take it for? I don't know. It's like, oh my goodness. <laughs> so teaching people to be advocates in front of their prescribers is something that I'm, you know, very passionate about. Like you were talking about, you can't lose by being intentional about your diet, sleep, and exercise. Well, you can lose by taking an SSRI. 
right? There's a lot of couples that I would work with where one of the partners or sometimes both of them would take, be taking Zoloft for depression and or anxiety. And one of the side effects to Zoloft is it knocks your libido back tremendously. And when I would bring that up to them in couples counseling session, they would just look at me and look at each other and they had no clue because their prescriber never told them that, right? And they didn't know to ask either. And so I, I want to you know, carry the burden where it belongs, right? Um, and they just took that as a, one more thing that was wrong with their marriage when actually it was a side effect of the SSRI, right? And the Zoloft in that case. And there is no drawback other than, yeah, somebody could go hiking and fall off a cliff and die, right? I mean, I guess that's a, that's a danger of hiking. But in terms of a neurological, neurotransmitter problem, it's just not going to result from diet, sleep, and exercise and being intentional about that. You have everything to gain and very little to lose. You can't say the same thing for uh, SSRIs and other heavy-hitting psychotropics. Well, and I've seen the same thing with, as you were speaking about that, the couple taking Zoloft. So I, I'm not going to name any names here, but I'm, I'm working with somebody right now who was prescribed a blood pressure mm-hmm. medication about five years ago. And it's like, hey, you have a family history of heart disease. You know, we want you to lose some weight to, you know, obviously improve your blood pressure and stuff. But until then, here's a blood pressure medication. You want to keep your arteries nice and loose and you don't want to make things more angry in the cardiovascular system than you should otherwise. So this guy's been taking this medication for five years now. We've made a lot of progress together, nutrition and exercise wise. In the past six months, he's gotten faster. He can do better cardiovascular exercise. He can lift his knees, not bothering him anymore. There's, there's a lot of things to that. However, he was unaware that weight gain, specifically water weight gain, and the inability to lose weight were common side effects studied with this particular Mm -hmm. medication. And so I, as his coach, had to say, look, you're doing great stuff. Our measures are changing. However, we're having a hard time with the number on the scale moving, even though we've seen progress. And one of the things we need to start a conversation with your doctor about is how are we going to decrease this medication and eventually, hopefully, wean off of it. And his response is, well, I'll probably be on this for the rest of my life because I have a family history of heart disease. And I'm like, you've never had a conversation with your doctor about what weaning off this looks like. And I know I'm using uh, heart medication Mm -hmm. here as a, or excuse me, blood pressure medication as a corollary, but the same thing is occurring in the psychotropic Mm -hmm. drug world is, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, difficulty focusing, insomnia, weight gain, uh, weight loss could also be a thing. Let's say you're taking a a medication for depression, but one of the side effects is anxiety. So Mm -hmm. you kind of like bebop between the two, you know, I want to manage my anxiety, but this, but, but I'm actively taking something that is working against that goal. Right. So I, I, I encourage anybody listening to this who, who is currently taking a medication, if nothing else, look, uh, Dr. Satello, I think I don't want to speak for you. You can, you can tell me if you, you think what I'm about to say is (laughs) stupid, but neither Dr. Satello or I are telling you to get off your medications and stop doing that. You're stupid for taking them. What we're telling you is go look up the side effects and symptoms. And if you haven't already have a conversation with your prescriber about what the long-term goal or plan around this, this intervention is for you. Because if, if you yourself are not committed to taking this for the rest of your life, then it would be awesome to know what the criteria are to improve your situation minus this medication over time. If you and your provider will have that conversation, it could open a lot of doors for you. Absolutely. I, I, I 100% 
agree with that, right? I'm I'm not trying to give anybody medical advice, but I do want you to be a good advocate and consumer of whatever it is you are taking in their approach. And here's another thing, you know, doctors have egos too, right? Meaning doctors have a need to be seen as effective and mm. have a need to be seen as, you know, authority in the field of medicine and physical health, things that anybody can do to automatically improve their health, right? Stop smoking, lose 10 pounds, drink less, behavior change. Most people don't do those things. If they're smokers, it's very hard to quit. If they're drinkers, it's very hard to quit. And people, you know, including myself, have been trying to lose 10 pounds for like 30 years with very little success, right? But it is easier to take a pill. And some of those pills can, for the short term, have a desired impact. So that's what we're up against, right? And, and uh, an example that I'll use, you take a penny and double it every day for a month right? So day one, it's a penny. Day two, it's two pennies. Day three, it's four pennies and do it for the whole month. By the end, you have like $3.4 million or something like that. You take the same penny, but only double it every other day. At the end of the month, you have like barely over $200,000. So that's where behavior change, especially with diet, sleep, and exercise really comes in is that you have to believe in it, number one. Number two, you have to be committed to it because it's something that over the course of three months, half a year to a year to a year to half, that's where the payoff is going to start happening. But most of us, including myself, we aren't patient for that. We want it to happen two weeks from now. And if this doesn't work two weeks from now, then what's the point of doing it, right? And so mm. that's where I see it's kind of the, the, the hurdle, so to speak, is getting over people to buy into doing what's right for them uh, for the long haul and the long term. That's actually a beautiful economic analogy. Like if taking a medication could give you $100 right now and you did that for 30 days, then you'd have $30,000. If you ask somebody, would you rather me give you $100 a day for 30 days or would you rather me give you a penny and double that every day for 30 days, which would you prefer? Most people would pick the $100 a day because it just makes sense. Uh, immediate results, immediate happiness. Mm -hmm. I can do that math. $30,000 a month's not too shabby, right? But if you did the doubling penny thing and you end up with $3 million, especially Especially if you extended that out into your entire life, that's, I, I guess that's a beautiful analogy to the difference between taking a medication for a long-term health and fitness problem for the long-term versus using diet, nutrition, and exercise to improve yourself over time. I guess the, uh, the take-home message is we don't know of any medication ever that has a compounding positive effect. Mm -hmm. We don't. But we do know that lifestyle, nutrition, and exercise has a compounding positive effect on everybody. Absolutely. And that's powerful. Thanks for that. I'm going to put that in my back pocket and pull it out again some other time soon. So <laughs> You're welcome. I got it from Richard Brooks. I want to give credit where credit's due. You can be the megaphone then. Um, I appreciate you anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, as we're kind of wrapping up here, this has been a conversation that's hit a lot of different buckets. We've spoken about your background in history. We've spoken about some divergence in how children are quote unquote classified from an academic and behavioral perspective. Mm -hmm. We've also talked about medications and perhaps their lack of utility when you're looking for compounding positive results. I want to make sure that our listeners, though, hear from you in the upgraded life. If you didn't hear anything else from me today, guys, this is what I want you to hear from Dr. Mm -hmm. Sotelo. What's that look like for you at the upgraded life? That if you find yourself looking for answers and if, if you're struggling with something that's, you know, mental health related, look as big picture as possible. And that, yes, you know, medications may play a role in your path to achieving whatever it is that you're that you need to achieve. However, the there just isn't the science, there isn't the research to suggest that long term, you know, even beyond 
a year, to be honest, if we look at the studies that are done to approve these medications. We don't know what the long-term positive outcome of that is going to be. So wherever you find your place in the here and now, get all the help that you can, right? Do all the consultation that you can, but do what you can to take the big uh, picture approach, long-term gain approach, and get really, really smart about that right? Look at the experts that are going to look at you as an individual versus a prescriber by the nature of our system in the U.S. In other countries, this isn't this way. France does not prescribe medications like we do. There's only two countries that allow the direct marketing of medication to the population. It's us in New Zealand. Otherwise, else, it's against the law to see a ad for a Fexer or whatever on, uh, or Viagra or Cialis. That doesn't happen in other countries, but it happens in the U.S. and it happens in New Zealand, right? So get super smart on your individual situation. Get with people who can speak to you directly because in, in our basic prescriber gets five, 10 minutes with you at best, right? And they're doing their best to give you the best care as possible. But by nature of that system, you're not really being looked at as an individual, right? And one other thing about medication there is that was verified for me through a research that was posted on WebMD when they polled like 30,000 people that were on medications. The vast majority of psychotropics are not prescribed by psychiatrists. They are prescribed by general practitioners. Wow. So the people that are taking pills every day for a mental disorder, that are not doing so under the care of a psychiatrist. So keep that in mind as well. So if you find yourself in the here and now needing help, absolutely get the help that you need, but take the big picture approach, take the long game approach to it. Find somebody that can address you as an individual and is willing and able to invest in you in your personal care. That's the best advice that I could give somebody who's looking for answers and struggling. Thanks for that, Dr. Satella. This is fantastic. I want to make sure that listeners know how to best get connected with you if they want to get connected with uh, your work with The Upgraded Life. I I understand that you also do life coaching as well. How do uh, people best get connected with you if they're interested in following up either for themselves or maybe getting engaged with your content? Absolutely. Thanks for that opportunity. Um, I'm very active on Facebook. You can look me up. My personal profile page is a good way to get in hold of me, Nick Sotelo. I'm on Instagram. I have a website nicksotello.com. You can find me there. And my podcast is on virtually every platform that hosts podcasts. So you can find me there as well. Awesome. And I'll make sure the links are in the description below for everybody. Appreciate it. Nick, thanks so much for jumping on with me. I appreciate this conversation. I think it's going to be really helpful to a lot of people. And I want to make sure uh, that, that they get an opportunity to share that out to their friends and family who might need to hear it. If we can all become better educated ourselves and, and we can encourage other people to do the same, and uh, maybe I won't be the only one running around to manage my own depression. And uh, that would be good for everybody as well. Absolutely. Thanks so much for coming on. And to our listeners, this has been Alex Van Houten with Defining Dad Bod. Until next time, guys, kick butt. Take names. The free practical advice and conversations here remain unbought and unbiased thanks to the support of listeners just like you. If this episode has been helpful to you, please share it with somebody in your life who you know it will benefit. Then subscribe to the podcast and leave us a raving review to tell others what value Defining DadBot has brought to your health and fitness journey. And finally, if you want more Defining DadBot, consider joining our online community. We send a lot of free perks and resources your way, and I, Coach Alex, go live every month to talk through our listeners' health and fitness questions to make the practical science of this show applicable to 
everyday life. Everyone's welcome, and we'd love to have you. For more information about joining the inner circle or becoming a supporter of the Defining Dad Bod podcast, go to definingdadbod.com slash inner circle. That's definingdadbod.com slash inner circle. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.